Blog Talk Radio. Hi, welcome to this edition of Wealth Psychology on Sylvia Global Media. We're so excited to be here, and I have a great guest today. This is a show that is all about making it so that we can have the best experiences we can have with our money, with our wealth, and our lives, so we can lead truly rich lives, no matter how much money is in our bank accounts. And today we are going to be talking about a loaded subject for just about anybody I know, which is that of prenuptial agreements. When to have them, how to have them, what they're about, what we need to know about them. And my guest today is Eric Newton of Heath Newton LLP. He's a family lawyer in San Francisco, and he's up to some really exciting things in the world. And recently, Eric was featured um, in an op-ed dialogue about a conversation around prenups that was sparked at the New York Times because of a pretty high-profile case where a woman was able to break her prenup saying that she was coerced into it and uh, only signed it four days before her wedding. And as a result, some people really weighed in about, do you have one? Do you not? Do they work? Do they not? And I just found out from Eric that it was recently uh, his comments were republished in Psychology Today. That makes us excited because this show is all about wealth psychology and the emotional <laughs> impact of these things. So welcome, Eric. Tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, family law, and why... Um, why you're passionate about prenups? Well, you know, I, I became interested in prenups. Of course, I'm a family lawyer, so people come and ask me about them. But it really stemmed from the fact that uh, handling divorces day in and day out can be emotionally extremely draining, especially for a romantic like myself. And so I, uh, at the <laughs> beginning of my career, was looking for a way to find something on the happier end of the the marriage process, if you if you will. And so I started thinking a lot about prenups and how we could use them to strengthen marriages and how we could use them in a positive way. Okay, and so I have to just jump in here because there's two things you said. One, you're a romantic lawyer, which most people <laughs> would not necessarily put together. And then the other is you just said something that I'm really passionate about as well, and this is one of the reasons why uh, you and I are in these conversations, is you just said a prenup can help strengthen a relationship. That's my core philosophy. Okay. Let's talk more about that. So what, you know, what happens with a premarital agreement is that, uh, well, what happens with a traditional premarital agreement, I should say, first, is that people go in from the perspective that they need to protect themselves and their future financial interests and that there's uh, an adversarial context that gets created as a result of that. And uh, it tends to break down trust. And it's scary for both people. It's scary for the person asking for the prenup. And it's scary for the person who is being asked to sign the prenup. And, uh, and, it, and it sets up a, a culture and a, a foundation, I think, that's not very effective for a long-term marriage for building strength and trust. But there is another way to do it. And this is where you know, my perspective comes into play. And that's that the issues that are addressed in a premarital agreement and that are addressed in a conversation around a premarital agreement are the issues that are going to come up in any marriage, in every marriage, inevitably, at some point, one or two years in, who knows how long, but it's going to happen. And the thing to do is to address those issues in advance in a healthy way 
at a time when everybody's happy and emotions are high so that people can address them in a fair and an even-handed way. Um, but even more importantly than that, it's, it's vital that couples lay a groundwork of communication at the beginning of their marriage so that when issues come up later that they didn't anticipate, they have somewhere to go with those. They have a, a foundation of, uh, of communication in place that they can call upon yeah. to address those issues. And it's interesting what you're saying because, uh, you know, research has shown that conflict around money, conflict around issues related to these conversations you're talking about is one of the main reasons that people cite for why they are no longer married, why their marriages come apart, where the conflicts arise. Yeah. And it's so much based out of not having the skill and understanding how to have these conversations effectively. And what you're saying is you can use right at the get-go, right when you're getting ready to start thinking about your marriage, not just your wedding, uh, wow, what are the things that matter to me, what are important in terms of creating our life together and in the event that something should happen and we're not together, that really this is at stake for me. This is this is what I really care about and how to be able to express that effectively. Is that what yeah. you're saying? Yeah, that's right. I, you know, what couples come when, when couples are in my office for a divorce and they're telling me what led to the divorce, uh, one of the very common complaints is that they were blindsided by a perspective that their spouse had that they never anticipated that person could have had. And it's not so much, but it, the perspective itself is a problem for them in, in, in that scenario. But what hurts more is the surprise. I, I had no idea you were that kind of a person. How could you think that way? And And so my view is, well, it's twofold. One, get everything out that you can get out, everything that you do know about yourself. Do the introspection necessary in advance using a guided approach. Have a professional help you think through the questions that are probably going to come up at some point. Determine your perspective. Articulate that to your partner. But, but beyond that, um, again, lay this groundwork for communication so that when something comes up that you couldn't anticipate, you're ready for it. You know how to talk about these issues. You got through it before the marriage in a very difficult context because, yeah, I mean, a prenup is a tough thing to talk about. But you made it through, and you learned some skills on how to talk about these things. And now five years in when the issue of an inheritance or what have you comes up and you didn't think about that, now you can address it with some alacrity and some presence of mind. Well, great. Well, you know, in our next segment, we're going to be talking about what is a prenup and what are the things we're going to be talking about in that. So if you're just tuning in, this is uh, family lawyer Eric Newton of Heath Newton LLP based out of San Francisco, and we are having a conversation about prenups and what we need to know about them. And you are tuning in to Wealth Psychology at Sylvia Global Media. My name is Emily Bouchard. I am the managing partner of Wealth Legacy Group. Thanks for tuning in. Now, for our next segment, let's see, this is going to work. Can you hear me now? I can hear you. Okay, great. I'm going to try this to be more in sync. So, welcome back. We are at Wealth Psychology with Emily Bouchard from the Wealth Legacy Group, and this is coming to you from Sylvia Global Media. 
And I am here with my guest, Eric Newton, a family lawyer at Heath Newton LLP. And we are here talking about prenups. Now, Eric, can we just dive into the nitty-gritty of what is involved in a prenup? Why uh, are people having this conversation at all? What are the things that they need to be looking at and make sure that what they don't even know that they don't know when it comes to a prenup? Sure. You know, I should uh, first tell you that prenups and marriage law is different from state to state. So Mm -hmm. I can only speak specifically to California, but I'm happy to do that to give you an overview of how it works. The thing that, the first premise that everybody needs to consider is the uh, simple fact that no matter where you live, no matter what jurisdiction you're in, you have a prenup already. And that's because the laws of your particular jurisdiction address marriage, and that means what happens to money during marriage and what happens to assets after marriage and before marriage. And that's a prenup. That's all it is. Uh, A prenup is just a bundle of rights that sets forth what you believe should happen to assets and control of those assets before, during, and after marriage. Okay, so you said that really specifically, and uh, a lot of people who tuned in would understand that. I find that one of my roles in this is just just to tease out a little bit as if my uh, 13-year-old granddaughter were listening in. So I'm going to just say, you know, so basically you're saying that there are laws in anybody's state that is tuning in right now, or maybe even country, country. that uh, that say, before you get married, this is what you own, and after you're married, this is what you own, and then if you were to divorce and separate, this is what you would own. And here's what would happen. And here's what would happen with belongings that you have that you own together or separately. Right. Okay. Right. And that's a prenup. And so the fact is that married couples have prenups. They have the default prenup that's created by their state or their country or their jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. And so in, from my perspective, the question isn't do you want a prenup? The question is, does the prenup that you already have that's been set by the state work for you? And, you know, the answer for 90% of couples is yes. That prenup is perfect. It's been created over hundreds, thousands of years in some places. Yeah. Of, uh, of common law in the UK and uh, common sense, as I said in the New York Times article. And, and, and so it works for most people, but for some people it just doesn't. And regardless of whether it works or not, people need to know what it is because it's a contract and it's a contract you're signing by dint of becoming married. And uh, many people don't know what that contract says. And I love so, that you talk about it as a contract because I think people miss the fact that when they get married, and they're signing their marriage license. They're getting all these things together. They're signing. Like, it's a contract. You are entering into a contract. Yeah, it's right in the vow. It's a marital contract. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, and, and yeah, I'm glad you, you point that out. It's a, it's a point that people are unaware of. And, and in my view, couples should come and, and talk to a professional and attorney in their area just to find out what it is that they're doing. It's, you know, it's, it's the most important contract that most people will sign in their entire lives. And in my view, the marital relationship sets the foundation for everything else that we do. Um, for healthy couples, it's the reason people go to work. It's the reason people have, um, you know, the drama that they have in the rest of their lives. And it should be solid. It should be a solid platform mm-hmm. so that you know what the contract is. So that's the foundational point. You've got one whether you want one or not. Now, in California, what that con- just very briefly, what that contract says in California is that assets that you acquire prior to marriage remain your separate property 
And if there's ever a divorce, you get to keep your separate property and it stays separate, it's not divided. Assets that you acquire during marriage and the income that you earn during marriage is considered to be community property. Community property is owned equally by both partners in the marriage. And if there's ever a divorce, that's what gets divided evenly. And of course, assets acquired after marriage are separate property. Now, is it just assets or what about liabilities? What if you come to a marriage with a lot of debt? Oh, great question. Uh, well, the same theory holds. So debt that you acquired prior to marriage in theory remains separate. Any debt that's acquired during marriage, and this, by the way, is a clincher for so many people, or it's a surprise, I should say, for so many people. Uh, debt that you acquire during marriage is considered community property, even if you acquire it in your own name, for instance, on a credit card that your spouse doesn't even know exists, that's still community debt. Uh, we had a case recently where somebody had acquired an immense amount of gambling debt in uh, Las Vegas, and it was community property. So, and, and the other person in the in the relationship didn't know that until it was time for the divorce and disclosure had to happen in terms of what they owned and what they had as debt? Right, and technically they need to share in that. There are some technical uh, procedures that we can use to get around it sometimes, but for the most part, debt acquired during marriage is community property and shared evenly by both people. Okay, so we have to do a little side caveat because yeah. is there something somebody can do legally in a relationship if they have a concern that there might be a gambling issue or there might be something that they can check and know what kinds of debts are out there that are in their spouse's name? Well, they can check public records, but the challenge is that many of these debts are held by private companies that aren't reporting them yet to credit reporting agencies. So it can be a real challenge to find uh, debts that are held in your spouse's name. Um, and again, this is a reason that you've got to talk about these issues in advance and have an immense amount of trust built up. So if I went to a lawyer before I got married to have a prenup done and have it be my one that I'm dictating in the marriage as opposed to my state, is that something that I could have put in it? Like, you know, Eric, it, you know, I know that he loves to go play poker with his buddies and he, he enjoys going to Las Vegas and I love him dearly and, you know, I've just heard about this and, you know, is it is it all right to put this in the prenup that... Um, you know, any any debts that are acquired that I wasn't aware of, I'm not responsible for. Like, they're not mine at the time of the relationship ending. Can I put yes. that in? Yes, absolutely. And, in fact, that's a fairly common clause. That's something that we see all the time. And it's not usually around the issue of gambling. It's usually around the issue of real estate investment, for instance. Or um, a very common pairing in relationships, I find, is the entrepreneur on one hand with the stable kind of career-oriented spouse, on the other hand, they come together because they're, they're an electric match in many ways. And they're a good balance, if you think about it from a portfolio perspective. And from a very dry perspective, it's a good portfolio to have a risk taker and a stable person. Uh, but it also creates a lot of conflict. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, the stable party wants to have some sort of safety structures built around the risks that the other one is taking. And so that's a fairly common cause that we'll create. Yeah, and I can just see how vitally important it is in terms of how you have that conversation, right? It's like right. there's one way to have it, which is, you know, I'm terrified and I want to be secure. And another is, because then the other person's going to feel like, how can you not trust me and right. why are you afraid? But if you have it from the standpoint of, you know, my risk tolerance is so much lower than yours. I need yes. a baseline of security. And this is really about 
some core fears I have around security that are mine, and it's more about so I can really love and embrace your risk-taking more fully in the relationship and not be afraid, and you don't have to deal with my insecurities and fear around my need for security, and then you can really have that freedom that you're looking for. Yeah, absolutely right. You know, what you're speaking to is so vital that money drives up our deepest issues. I think the two um, realities in the human experience, from my perspective, that drive up our unresolved issues are finances and romance. And when you bring them together into one context, all of our unresolved stuff is going to come up to the front. Yeah, and how many people actually have any kind of background of role modeling that's really excellent and clear in terms of how to have these conversations effectively and, you know, have them be really solid and strengthen your relationship? So we're going to have another segment in just a moment with Eric Newton of Heath Newton LLP based out of San Francisco. My name is Emily Bouchard. I'm your host at Wealth Psychology at Sylvia Global Media. And we are talking about prenups from all kinds of different angles in terms of how they emotionally impact relationships. So thanks for tuning in. So welcome back. We're at Wealth Psychology at Sylvia Global Media. I'm speaking with Eric Newton, and we are going to launch into another aspect of prenuptial agreements. Eric, you are so like conscious and intentional in terms of how you're approaching this with couples. Could you give an example of a situation you've had with a couple where you've had to navigate some pretty strong emotional uh, questions or concerns and you realize, wow, they did some things that they didn't know that they didn't know and that you helped them navigate? Yeah, well, this happens in pretty much every every prenup I ever work with. Um, I think the entire process is one of discovering what you didn't know that you didn't know. And the devil is always in the details. Couples often come to me and say, well, you know, we figured it out. Uh, we want to waive spousal support unless we have kids. And uh, he's going to keep the house, and we're going to live in it together. And our income is going to be divided evenly. And we start to dig into the details of well, how does the mortgage on the well, house get and paid? And I want to jump in because when they say we figured it out, I know that <laughs> with the with the money types that you and I have been talking about and our work in terms of the wealth psychology piece is, you know, if you have somebody that has a strong uh, like warrior or maybe even like a bit of a don't even question me, I know what's right um, approach, the other may have more of an innocent, more of a, oh, well, that sounds right. And, yeah, that makes a lot of sense without really doing their own due diligence about, wait, what does this actually look like? or yeah. How is this going to impact me? So those those different patterns of relating around having conversations around money can fuel a initial, oh, yeah, we're in agreement, when there actually might be a lot of disagreement that's not getting expressed. So go on. Tell, tell us more about that. You know, you, you raise such a – those two archetypes when they come together uh, are so interesting. And, and I see I see those that pairing very frequently, and there's one of two outcomes that always happens. Either the the domineering person who's used to having their way, I guess you would call them the type A personality typically, mm -hmm. who's used to uh, structuring their life exactly the way that they want it to be structured, and the person who um, matches with that person in this instance and wants to have their life structured for them. Um, if the domineering personality overwhelms the other and 
creates an agreement that reflects only what the first person wanted. Mm -hmm. It never works out well because what invariably happens is the other party starts to feel slightly resentful and they start to experience this tickle of intuition that says maybe something isn't right here in the marriage. And I've seen that break up the marriage before it started. And I've seen it plant seeds of uh, derision early on that then blossom into divorce later. Yeah, it's, what, what is, oh, I'm sorry, go on. Well, I was going to say the alternative to that, <laughs> yeah. what works extraordinarily well, yeah. is for these two parties to use uh, the, I guess you could call it the conflict that's manifesting, to go deeper into their relationship. And in that case, what always ends up happening is the type A person encourages the other person to articulate their perspective and to make sure that their fears are uh, articulated and made, made whole and, and given ground and credence. And then they end up creating a premarital agreement that reflects both of their perspectives on marriage. Mm -hmm. And they lay the, found, the, the, the groundwork for a relationship that really works going forward. It yeah. goes one of those two ways. We try to guide them, of course, towards articulating their points. But in, in, a, in the prenup context, you just do not want to suppress the other side's perspective. That's really well said. And, you know, when I was going to jump in, I was looking at it from the standpoint that we often see and that I've seen in couples, too, where uh, this really is a great opportunity to strengthen a relationship right from the start. And when we think about your foundational components of your relationship, before you get married, the cement isn't quite solid. It hasn't quite firmed up in your foundation. You're still looking at who are we together? How are we going to be in relationship for the rest of our lives? And there's a lot of questions that come up around that in terms of how our parents were, in terms of what our ideals are. And this conversation brings forward so many different issues. I love how you said that about, you know, these little kernels of seeds. And I often use the image of before that cement sets, if some of those seeds get planted, and take root, even if it's just slightly, they will put such cracks in your foundation that you will never have firm footing in your relationship. Yeah. And I've worked with, I mean, I can think of one couple I worked with that was worth, uh, you know, multi, like tens of millions, like, wow, hundreds of millions, actually. And uh, the the depth of love that they had for each other was really beautiful. And they had four kids, and they were really successful, strong entrepreneurs, both of them. And the resentment that grew so deeply and was so rooted in her heart because of how she was treated, not by him, but by his father in particular. Oh, that is so common. And I'm it's so glad you bring that up. It was imposed on them, and she felt like such, you know, an in-law treated as an outlaw when she had all the best intentions. Yeah. So, guys, talk a little bit about what happens. Oh, you know what? I'm thinking we need to have this be a next segment because this is really key, and I want to make sure we give it its due. So, let's just take a moment to just, you know, station identification. This is Sylvia Global Media, and we are doing a wealth psychology segment on prenups. My name is Emily Bouchard from Wealth Legacy Group, and we're speaking with Eric Newton of Heath Newton LLP, based at Union Square in San Francisco. Next segment is going to be on when prenups are imposed. 
So welcome back. We're at Well Psychology at Sylvia Global Media. Eric Newton, family lawyer, San Francisco, tell us about what you've seen when prenups are imposed on somebody from another person in the family, not necessarily their spouse. Well, it's something that happens fairly frequently, and particularly with uh, larger, more established families with higher assets and trust funds and family businesses. Uh, there's usually an, uh, a, a, somebody from a former generation, usually a father, who insists that their child get a prenup in an upcoming marriage. And most of the time, it serves to break trust, just as you articulated in the last segment. Occasionally, it's a good excuse to start the conversation, and then the couple can take control of this train, and they can hold the conversation in the way that they want to. And that's the best scenario. That's the outcome that we always you know, hope to move the process towards. However, oftentimes it's the father or the grandfather controlling what's in the prenup. And in that case, there's no opportunity for the couple to craft the document that supports their idiosyncratic perspective of marriage. They don't have any opportunity to talk about their issues and their concerns. It's all about what grandpa or dad wants. And uh, in that case, they might as well not have a prenup. It usually it, 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 it creates these seeds of derision that you're talking about. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting, I was thinking about a couple I worked with where uh, they were young, they were idealistic, they were just absolutely delightful to work with, and um, they were so happy in every domain of their life, and the only time it got painful was when she would come forward with, well, what about me and what what I can have in terms of security if something did happen for us, because I signed this prenup, and in a sense, I get to enjoy all of this, but none of it's really mine. Mm. And is there any way that we can build something for me, or can I use um, some of what my income's going towards, towards building a little, like, securities for me? And then he would just go to this place of, why are you planning for divorce? And it's mm. never going to happen, and we don't need that. And we they worked with me around this because it was so painful for them, and it was a way to look at how to um, look at getting her needs met in terms of her security and what was the we that they could create communally mm-hmm. in the context of their prenup? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's something that we always address before the marriage starts. You know, the the we only talked in two segments back about the first stage of, of California marital law, and that was how assets are divided. Mm-hmm. There's another component, which is spousal support. You know, in California, the... Uh, higher earning spouse will pay to the lower earning spouse some amount of support each month. And in other states, that's called alimony. We call it spousal support here. And you need, to, you need to think about spousal support and property division as two of the very necessary components of long-term financial security for people. On one hand, you have ability to earn, you know, career earning potential and, and earning power. And that's what spousal support is meant to approximate. On the other hand, you have savings for retirement, the nest egg, and that's what property division is meant to address. And when uh, a couple is planning what might happen if there is a divorce, they're looking at both of these components, but they often merge them. And the merging of the two leads to the problem that you're talking about with your clients. Because uh, what happens when a very low asset party marries a very high asset party? 
is that the high asset party's income is such that the couple doesn't need to save for retirement because there's a trust fund yeah, exactly. or there's yeah. a business that's generating income. And so they're not saving, but they are spending, and so they're developing a particular kind of lifestyle. And if something were ever to happen, if the higher earning party were to pass away, or if they were to divorce, or if the higher earning party were to become incapacitated and they weren't able to earn anymore, uh, there wouldn't be any of the savings in place to create safety. And if divorce is the outcome, that means that the higher earning party gets to go on with their lifestyle that they've created and continue to have that earning. And the lower earning party is pretty much out. Mm -hmm. uh, they're going to get some spousal support, but they're not going to get any any savings for retirement. And it can set, it can set up a whole thing of like deceit because I could see somebody feeling like they they don't have any say, and then they would feel justified in um, taking monies or other things that uh, they have access to during the marriage, and then um, trying to do something behind their spouse's back because they're not able to do it in a forthright way together as a couple. Like absolutely, read that. Absolutely, it, it just harms that partnership, right? Mm -hmm. Because you want to have transparency and openness for the for a partnership to truly work. And so what we say in our office is we don't have any particular perspective on how you should structure your, your life in order to, to deal with that concern. But you've got to be aware that that concern exists. And you've got to address it transparently and clearly up front so that people's needs and their fears expressed and otherwise are taken care of. Yep. Exactly as you're saying. If they're not taken care of, you don't have that foundation to move forward healthfully in your marriage. Yeah, and that's what you need. Yeah, really well said. That's so important. And I think what um, I'd like to focus on next is, you know, what is it that when somebody comes to you and comes to you with that, this is what we figured out and this is what we know it should look like. Um, how do you open up the conversation and have them, what are some things that you have people really strongly look at and consider so that they can really come to a lawyer prepared and have a sense of, well, we really have thought this through. Mm -hmm. So this is, uh, we'll just take a moment to just let everybody know they're tuning in to Wealth Legacies Group's Wealth Psychology on Sylvia Global Media. And my guest is Eric Newton of Heath Newton LLP, uh, based out of San Francisco. And next up is we're going to be talking about the nuts and bolts of prenups. So, you know, our first approach is always to establish the framework for the conversation that the purpose of the conversation is to strengthen the marriage, and that if you're not having the conversation for that purpose, you probably shouldn't be having the conversation at all. So starting from that premise, uh, our approach at the firm No, is I, I have to slow you down, because when you said you probably shouldn't be having this conversation, all I'm thinking, you probably might want to even look at whether you should be getting married. Like, <laughs> if you can't have a conversation that this is this significant and important and a core value about security, whoa, you got to look at do I really trust myself with this person and how do they, you know, that's really vital. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt, but go on. Well, you know, I, 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 I hesitate to even say it, but we've seen uh, a couple of our, our couples actually decide not to get married during the process of having these conversations. And, and I thought of that as a real blessing. Um, we're rigorous in how we have this conversation and, and because we want to set people up for success. And uh, if through that rigorous process they decide that it's not going to work, that's, that's such a blessing. Oh, my gosh, yes, because if they got married and had kids yeah. together and this is already at play, oh, what a nightmare. Yeah. 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 yeah yes. Good point. 
So the, the way we approach it is we just start scratching below the surface and looking at the details of whatever the couple has said that they already know that they want. And it doesn't take long. And whatever the topic is, I can give you some specific examples. Please, but please as soon as you dig yeah. below the surface, you find that they haven't really thought it through. Um, real estate and business interests are the two biggest. Uh, the business interests are particularly complicated because the default law in California says that your personal effort is owned by the community once you're married. So it's not just the income that you earn, it's your actual, your your blood, sweat, and tears. It's the work that you put into things is owned by the community. So if you're building a business, even if you acquired it prior to marriage, if you're building it during the marriage, it becomes community property to a certain degree because of the effort that you're putting into it. And is it also the effort of the other spouse that's um, making sure that you have good meals and, you know, your kids are well taken care of and that you, you know, takes care of the home life? Is that considered part of the blood, sweat, and tears too? Or is there... It is. Um, and and that fact is expressed in the uh, in the law around real estate. So, oops, let me turn off my phone here. Uh, in the real estate context, when one party... Um, so let's say a, a home is owned by one party separately prior to marriage. And then during the marriage, that party goes and let's say they redo the bathroom in the house. Well, in that case, they've contributed their personal effort to the house. And so the house has increased in value as a result. And so now the community owns a portion of that house. But if the other party contributes to the development of the house in some way, whether it's by creating a stable foundation for the first party to go work on the house, or if they themselves go in and redo the roof, mm -hmm. that also contributes personal effort owned by the community into the house. And so portion of the house becomes community property. So it doesn't matter which spouse is doing the work or what kind of work they're doing. It's contributing to the overall growth and the wealth of the community. And you can see how that plays into kind of America's core ethos and how marriage works. Right? The two people come together as one and their efforts from that point forward are shared and the fruits of those labors are also shared. And that's expressed in the law. And, uh, and But in today's society in the, in the way that marriages are happening today with entrepreneurs of different stripes coming together in different configurations, that can create a real challenge for two people coming together in order uh, to sort out their business affairs or their real estate interests in a way that works for them. And so, uh, again, we just need to start scratching below the surface a little bit to find out what it is that they actually want to happen with these business interests to find out that um, that they haven't considered everything. When you described that you had a couple of couples that actually decided not to get married, do, do you recall what the sticking points were for them or what they weren't able to resolve? I, yeah, I'll, I'll say generally because I hesitate yeah. to say specifically um, uh, because of confidentiality, but uh, in both of those cases, it had to do with core philosophy around the use of wealth. What is the purpose of wealth and how should it be used? And um, it's like the spending it versus maintaining it versus uh, I'm stewarding this wealth that's within my family and it's meant to go to my kids and only my kids and, you know, like where there's real differences in terms of values around it. Yeah. Yeah. 
And again, it's it's my view after seeing this hundreds upon hundreds of times that um, money is at the core of what we humans think about ourselves. It's it's at the root of our deepest fears and our deepest hopes. And when these things start to come to the surface, um, they're not necessarily ugly. There's nothing wrong with them, but they're also not always compatible. You know, and, and these yeah. these two couples, it was back-to-back -back actually last year that these two couples had this experience. And my view of these folks was that nobody's perspective was wrong. In fact, I thought all their perspectives were quite lovely. It's just that they didn't work together. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and that's fine. Right. I, in fact, I bumped into one of these people recently at a social outing and uh, he was expressing how happy he is in his new relationship. And he felt like he learned a lot from that experience and things were moving forward happily. So, oh, that must have made you feel good. It did. It really did. I, I this... hoped that that was the case and it was really great to see it in, in reality. It's so fascinating listening to this because this is kind of like, you know, lawyer turned marriage counselor turned, you know, <laughs> it, it, it used to be that people were so involved in their church, their religious institutions, that they would go and get their premarital counseling through the clergy and there'd be strong values that would, and I'm sure some people tuning into this, it's like, absolutely, I'm in my premarital, you know, counseling program right now, and that's fantastic. And as people don't necessarily use those resources or have them, it's an amazing position to be in as a lawyer where you're looking at the nuts and bolts of the legal uh, questions that these people are encountering and you're ending up uh, supporting them and really finding out this is a real clear match where they're really compatible. Yeah, it's such an honor to be in that position. You know, I, I, I care so much about human relationships and the romantic dynamic is my favorite of all. And it's, it's my belief, I think my deepest belief, that we come together in order to grow. And we come together and invariably our issues come to the forefront because we're in a romantic relationship our unresolved issues come up. And when they do, some people ignore those issues, some people break up as a result of those issues, and some people grab onto those issues and they go deeper into their relationship and they end up having more beautiful, happier, more fulfilling lives as a result. And that's what I aim for. And I do it in my small way as a lawyer. And uh, some people can hear it and some people can't, but that's what we aim for at our firm. Wow, this is so great. In our next segment, I really want to focus on the issues that face blended families because you just spoke into something really important that they definitely encounter more so than other families. So uh, if you're just uh, tuning in, this is Emily Bouchard with the Wealth Psychology Show at Sylvia Global Media, and my guest is Eric Newton of Heath Newton LLP. And, you know, Eric, what I want to ask you is uh, – you were just speaking in the last segment about how uh, people can really use these conversations to strengthen and have really meaningful romantic relationships, even when it's very, very heated and, and emotional around emotion, uh, around the emotional impact of what's going to happen with our money if we don't stay together in terms of a prenup conversation. And my uh, particular focus and expertise is on blended families, people who have um, been in prior relationships, perhaps had children in prior relationships, both of them, and then they come together and they have yours, mine, and ours scenarios with their kids and they have new hopes and dreams for this new relationship, whether it's their second or their third. And 
they have a lot of history. They have a lot of baggage. They may have spousal support that they're paying from a past relationship or alimony in other states. They have child support issues that they're having to do. They have assets. They may have debts from and obligations that they're legally bound to from prior relationships. And they're coming together wanting to form a new family, a new life, and have everything be rosy. And they didn't learn beforehand how to do it well. And so these conversations are particularly loaded because when they happened in the past, they may have contributed to the relationship breaking up. And so in estate planning for the blended family that uh, L. Paul Hood, a former estate planning attorney, and I wrote together, we really focused on prenups quite a bit because it's such a foundational piece and people dealing with these complex dynamics with conflicts of interest with uh, these obligations from the past really have to contend with and have you, do you have any experience working with people from that perspective yeah I'll tell you the blended family couples who come to us for prenups tend to be the least emotionally charged and the most pragmatic ah well, good. Prove me wrong. Let me hear it. I I, I hate to prove you wrong, and uh, but it's 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 so funny our different perspectives. I think they must work out their issues with you in advance, and then come to us afterwards. Is probably what's happening here. Um, it, my experience is that the blended families are um, they're so clear on their ulterior priorities that when they merge those two priorities together because they both have priorities on the outside that make sense to them and that they're unrepentant about. They come together, they articulate them, and then we have a prenup very quickly. Um, well, because there's a lot of clarity then. Clarity. But clarity, and- it's the key. <laughs> it is the key. You know, I uh, what I was stating in the last segment was that when we come together in a romantic dynamic, our issues come to the fore. And uh, we can use those to go deeper if we if we take that opportunity. And the way that, in my view, we go deeper with those issues is we look at the value that's being threatened, that's causing the emotion to manifest. Yeah. And when you get clear on the value that's being threatened, you can speak. You can speak so directly. You know, when you speak about your shared values or your individual values, that's a it's a language that people understand, and it's a language that results in very clear prenups. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think you know one of the things that we work with people on with our rich life portfolio and with couples that come to us has a lot to do with uh, identifying their core values and giving them a place of safety to be able to express them and, and share them with each other and right. um, not hit each over the over the head with them like my way or the highway, but more like no, oh, this is. This is who I am, and this is what really matters to me. And yay that they're going to you in advance and having these prenups. And I think that uh, one of the reasons why we are so uh, concerned about it in our book is because if somebody's reaching for a book on blended family estate planning and they're looking at, wow, I want to be conscious and take this seriously, uh, it's probably the most important conversation they're going to be having in in all of this because it it just is the foundation for every decision you make, every uh, possible structure you might have for how to take care of all the people you care about in your life. Yeah. Yeah. My experience with the blended families is that they've, you know, I think when people are younger uh, and they're less, clear on what their own values are, it's more difficult to articulate those values, of course, right? Yeah. But people who've been through a divorce and have had children are very clear on what they care about and their priorities and their values. And they can just articulate them to each other. 
And, you know, you've got to fit the puzzle pieces together, absolutely. That's why they hire an attorney to do it mindfully. And, and that's something of a challenge, but it's doable once you're clear about the perspective. And so I love working with blended families. I find them to be so refreshingly direct. Yeah, that's a really good point. So I'm delighted that you are because some people just shy away from them. And uh, one thing that uh, often comes up for blended families is, and then prenups in general, is it seems like it's really essential that each party has their own lawyer involved in it. And you keep saying we and these couples. So do you have a different take on that, that you can draw up a prenup that both people sign and they don't have to have two lawyers? Well, you raise a great point. So in order for an agreement to be binding in California, both parties need to have quote, the opportunity to consult with independent counsel. Yeah. That's the language of the law. Now, what that actually means in California law is that you've both got to have attorneys. Yes. If you had the opportunity but you didn't get one, you probably didn't really have the opportunity. So for an agreement to be binding, you both need lawyers. Now, that said, there are a couple of ways that you can go about drafting a prenup. One is the traditional, and this is where one party hires a lawyer, tells them what they want in the prenup, the lawyer drafts it up, sends it over to the other party's lawyer who reviews it, yeah. and then there's a back and forth, a negotiation, eventually you reach an agreement and you're done. That can work for some couples uh, if there's very good communication, or it can create a contentious battleground if there isn't. Yeah. Um, we're quite good at navigating those waters to make them as, as amicable as possible. Uh, and that's the route, the route that most people take because it's the least expensive. The alternative is that the couple hires one attorney to draft the agreement and to mediate the conversation and to, to coach the two of them through considering implications of their choices and, and working out an agreement that really works. And then they each take it to separate attorneys who review it for them to make sure that there's nothing crazy and that their interests are being satisfied. And then they all sign it together. Great. And we're, the next segment, we're going to be talking a little bit about the nothing crazy part because that's been happening in the news recently in terms of some pretty far out things that people are including in their prenups these days. So. Oh, great. I can't wait to hear it. <laughs> yeah. So this is Wealth Psychology at Sylvia Global Media. I'm Emily Bouchard from Wealth Legacy Group, and uh, we are here with Eric Newton of Keith Newton LLP in San Francisco area, and we're talking about prenups. And, you know, in the news in the past um, year or so, I've encountered different stories uh, about uh, especially younger people, uh, people that have uh, been pretty successful in making some money right up front or they have a lot of hopes and dreams and they have new companies that they're starting. And they're actually putting things in their prenups like, uh, you know, like specific items, like like little things that they own or their cars or like they're getting very honed and very specific about things. And I was wondering if you've encountered anything like that or if you've seen anything that really is kind of crazy. When it, like has somebody ever come to you and said, here's a prenup we've drawn up and we think it's good and, you know, what do you have to say? So. Yeah, people are, are definitely very specific about the assets that they want divided. And um, I actually find that to be pretty common. You know, a, a motorcycle collection that somebody's acquired prior to marriage or an art collection or you know, real estate, and, and we like to be very, very specific and detail-oriented about those things. It makes people comfortable, and and comfort is 95% of the battle here. Definitely. Uh, the crazy clauses, I'll call them, 
actually, let me rephrase that. The clauses that uh, the media thinks are crazy, um, but that I actually think are perfectly acceptable if mm -hmm. it's useful for the marriage. Oh, I'm so glad you said it that way. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah because really, again, it's 95% of this thing is comfort, right? And yeah. being able to communicate expectations and needs and desires. And if you need to put in something that um, your mom's not going to understand, but that makes your marriage stronger, do it. And I will support you in doing that. That's what we're here for. Um, and and the, the, the unfortunate fact about some of those clauses, though, is that they're not enforceable under California law. And if they're not handled appropriately, they can actually weaken the agreement. So an example would be a clause having to do with sexual relationships. Because we live in a no-fault divorce state in California, which is a very good thing. It means that people can get divorced if they need to. They don't have to prove cruelty or any of these outdated concepts that you hear about in the movies, mm -hmm. 40s. Um, we live in a no-fault divorce state, and the implication of that for prenups is that you cannot uh, hold somebody accountable for adultery or uh, sexual uh, dalliances or um, any kind of sexual clause at all that you might want to include is not enforceable by a court. That said, I think it's very important if you're extraordinarily, extraordinarily clear in your relationship that some component of your relationship um, needs to be memorialized up front. And an example of this is something that I think you and I are going to talk about later, which is polyamorous couples. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of polyamorous couples in the Bay Area. And um, for those of you who are tuning in and have never heard that term before, uh, it is a term that is being used to describe couples that are openly choosing to uh, say, I'm willing, I'm committed to you. Um, you are my primary partnership and we're, we're definitely married and our marriage includes uh, being able to have other people that we also are intimate with in different ways. And people just find this across the board and Eric is very well aware of this, and when it came up in a prior interview, I asked him if he would come back on the show and, you know, really educate some people around what is this whole phenomenon of polyamory and how, what are the legal implications of it, and we'll talk about the emotional side of it, too. So right. thanks for bringing that up now, and this is really key. So if a couple comes to you and they're saying, look, we have this as a really important premise in our relationship, yeah. and this is what it means as a primary couple, and this is what it means then they can almost use their prenup to kind of determine their code of honor around their behavior around this lifestyle. Right. Yeah, and, and, what, and, and it requires two things. One is to really explore and to be very certain that the couple knows what their rules are. Now, polyamorous couples are, are very intentional and very mindful about their process. They've given this a lot of thought. They usually have attended courses and and classes on how to structure their relationship. <laughs> you know, they're very clear about it, so we don't have to do too much of uh, finding out what the rules are. But once we've clarified what the rules are, we can put them in the prenup. And uh, the second component, though, is that we need to be very clear in the prenup that we understand that this is not enforceable under California law, but we're including it anyway because we think it's important to more memorialize the agreement in advance but we don't mean it to uh, detract from the validity of the rest of the prenup. It is enforceable. So it can be included, and I think it should be included, but it needs to be included in a very specific, um, legally structured way. 
You know what that brings to mind for me is something that I learned a long time ago, which is we have this idea that uh, because I love you, I need to trust you. And uh, memories change and agreements that we thought we had that were really clear, we have different interpretations of. And so true. It, whether you're in a marriage partnership or a business partnership, any kind of partnership you're in, it's really essentially important to have whatever agreements you have around your partnership mm-hmm. in writing. And you're, this is such a wonderful way, like you said, to really memorialize it. And what we care enough about this, we're paying a lawyer to help us articulate this really clearly mm-hmm. and specifically. And what what I recommend so strongly for couples is to really write down what is it that their values are, what is it that's core for them that they can keep going back to uh, that's written, that's that's tangible, so that when there is conflict that comes up, they get to both look at that together. And it's, looks at, it's something outside of their emotional state, and it's something that's written, and that that often can replace trust as we talk about it as, wow, we trusted each other enough to draw this up, and now we get to see how we're putting this into action. So it sounds like that's what you're, you're bringing to these relationships. It's really great. It is. You know, you, you raise a point that I want to address, which is that it, it's so important to talk in advance because memories change. There goes my phone again. Memories well, let's hold on. Like, hold on. This is really good, and I want to make sure the next segment gets this, and um, this will be our final segment on prenups and the emotional impact of prenups. And we are here with Eric Newton of Heath Newton LLP. And we are talking about, wow, right now we're going to talk about conversations in advance and how to have them effectively when it comes to your prenups. So, Eric, take it on. So the point that I was uh, uh, gearing up to make is (laughs) (laughs) uh, just as you said, uh, our memory changes. And the things that we were certain that we said in advance, oftentimes we didn't say. So you're right. We've got to memorialize everything that we can as clearly as possible. And that's why we hire lawyers, because that's what lawyers are experts in doing, is is thinking through contingencies and uh, articulating detail in an elegant way. Now, that said, what I want to also be very clear about is that you can't possibly think of everything. Oh, so glad you're saying that because it's it's just the ad nauseum. There's no way. Well, what's it? What's it? So definitely talk about like you definitely go into those details, but then do you also support people on how to move if something comes up that they hadn't anticipated? Yes, it's just as you said. You need to be clear on your values, and if if the couple can get clear on their values in advance, but not possibly think about every contingency because it's not something that humans can do. You articulate everything that you can articulate in the agreement. You're clear on your values. And then three years later, something changes. Something happens that you didn't anticipate, and one person becomes scared or a value is threatened and anger manifests. And then what do you do? The thing you do is go back to the values Mm -hmm. and go back to the groundwork that you laid with those initial conversations and work forward from that point. Yeah, it's interesting. I know a couple in particular that I'm thinking of that um, they were both from different countries, um, both European. They were living in the United States, and one came from a Jewish family and Jewish background. The other came from a Catholic background. And when they got together, they fell in love, they, and they had lots of conversations around how they were going to raise their children. And they came to an agreement about what that was like. And then when they had their first baby, 
the person in the relationship who was Catholic was suddenly terrified because because of what they had come up with, they weren't going to baptize the child. And it caused a huge issue in their relationship because a value that was really very core and very important to that member of the couple didn't necessarily get fully expressed until after the child was born. Right. So this, is, this brings up a good question. Can you modify or change a prenup? Oh, absolutely. In fact, it makes a prenup stronger if you modify it afterwards. So you, you create a contract before the marriage, then the marriage happens, and then you modify the prenup and maintain most of it and change one small clause. It looks as if you really agree in the prenup even after marriage. You, you want this contract to continue existing, so it actually strengthens it. Yeah, so and, it's, idea. and it's a good point that I want to make too, which is it goes back to the very first segment, which is uh, we talked a little bit about commingling property at the time mm-hmm. of your relationship. Mm-hmm. And I don't think people are necessarily aware that if they have a very clear prenup and it's really well stated and everything's you know crystal clear, and then they commingle aspects of the property that the prenup says it would not be commingled, mm-hmm. and that means you know they uh, you know whether it's the house that you were talking about and they did like the person who didn't own the house suddenly was painting all the rooms and they were um, you know, putting in a lot of effort and energy into making it their own home. And maybe they even did a, I don't know, a refinance or something where they're, they're part of it. That will nullify that part of the prenup. It's a, if you commingle something, that's considered community property. That's mm-hmm. my understanding, unless it's very clearly stated. Right. What you're speaking to is that once you set up the terms of an agreement, you have to follow that agreement. If you don't follow the agreement, it looks like you didn't want it in the first place and it weakens the agreement. Um, and so uh, so we, we try to set up agreements that are followable, that okay. people can follow through with. And we remind them the agreement that they've made. Um, and we don't put in clauses that aren't going to be held. For instance, <laughs> one clause that a lot of lawyers will include in a prenup that we don't usually include is that the couple needs to meet monthly or annually to discuss finances in a specific way and set up their budget for the following year. And couples just never remember to do that. I I mean, it's a good idea. People probably should do it. I mean, you can probably attest to how important that is, but nobody does it. And so if (laughs) any nobody, but in in very few, am I right? Yeah. So so ten years into the marriage, they're having a divorce, they never followed through with that particular clause and one person says, Well, you know, it means the agreement is invalidated because we never agreed, you know. You, you want to get rid of that contingency. On the other hand, mm-hmm. uh, we bake in uh, clauses into our agreements uh, that take care of those kinds of problems for the most part, so that if people don't follow through on something, it doesn't mean the agreement's invalidated. It just means that they didn't do that thing they were supposed to do. Um, one thing is transferring assets into a particular account, for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they don't transfer the assets into the account on a regular basis that they're supposed to do, it doesn't mean the agreement's invalidated. It just means they owe the money to the account, yeah. and they've got to pay it over now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, well, this is fantastic. Eric Newton of Heath Newton LLP, family lawyer and uh, passionate uh, advocate for using prenups to strengthen marriages. Thank you so much for being on this edition of Wealth Psychology at Sylvia Global Media. And I'm Emily Bouchard, your host today at uh, the Wealth Psychology uh, program that I do, I co-host with Dr. Jamie Traeger-Muni. And she is in the 
process of undergoing radiation for breast cancer, and she'll be so joining sorry. us when that's done. Yes, thank you. And she's definitely here in spirit, and will be weighing in on this conversation for sure. And I uh, wanted to make sure that people knew how to reach you, Eric, and how to learn more about prenups in general that you can direct them to. Well, our uh, URL is here on my name, uh, Heath Newton LLP. Uh, is the name of the law firm, and HeathNewton.com is our website address. And at that site, you can download a free guide that we've created that discusses premarital agreements. And uh, we're also always happy to answer questions that people have at any time. We love talking about these issues. And so if any of your listeners want to call in, I'm happy to have a short consultation with them and give them an overview of the law. Wow, great. That's wonderful. And remember that um, Eric's based out of California in the United States, so he can really support people in that particular region. And then he can also give you overviews of things you need to talk about or think about if you're in a different location. Um, and at Wealth Legacy Group, I wanted to mention that I'm going to be speaking and presenting um, with my co-author, L. Paul Hood. Uh, we wrote The Estate Planning for Blended Families. And great book, by the way. Thank you. And we are going to be presenting at the Purposeful Planning Institute's rendezvous in Denver this coming August on the topic of how uh, professionals can collaborate effectively when it comes to drafting really effective prenups and what to consider and what not to. So we'll definitely be drawing on this, Eric. Thank you. And have a great day. And definitely, if you don't have a prenup, know that you do. It's just according to your jurisdiction and state and not your wishes. So thanks, thanks for, for having tuning me, in. Kelly. It was a real Thank pleasure you. to be here. Thank